Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. The Appearance Psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Abby. And we're back after a short summer break following our 2023 summer short series. And we've got a very exciting episode for you this month. The first episode in our Appearance Matters 10 conference series. Fantastic. So for any listeners who haven't heard of the Appearance Matters conference before, Appearance Matters is an international academic conference which is hosted every other year by the Centre for Appearance Research. As the name suggests, this is conference number 10. Yes, and this conference will be happening in person in Bristol from the 11th to the 13th of June 2024. It will be a great few days of talks, presentations, panels and networking covering current research, theory and practice around all appearance related issues from people all around the world. And I'm really looking forward to it. I am too. And if anyone wants to learn more about the Appearance Matters conference series, you can dig deep into our podcast archives and listen to a couple of previous episodes about the conference. And we will be featuring some of this year's conference content on the podcast as well. So anyone who can't attend in person can still hear some of the fantastic talks that will be going on. Yes. And so at the conference this year, we will be having two keynote talks which are essentially the headline acts of an academic conference. So the first of these will be given by Dr. Kathleen Bogart, who is an associate professor at Oregon State University in the US and who is an expert in visible difference research, as well as research into disability and ableism more broadly. Maya spoke to Kathleen about her career as a researcher and academic, how Kathleen became involved in this area of research and she gives us some real teasers for her keynote speech. Oh, I'm really looking forward to hearing it. And as part of our conference episodes on the podcast, we'll also be recording and sharing the actual keynote talks as well. So that's something to look forward to next summer. So let's hear from Kathleen now. Hello, Kathleen, and welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. Hi, Naya. Thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely to have, a, have you join us today. And it's doubly exciting because you're going to be joining us in June uh, next year for our 10th Appearance Matters conference as a keynote speaker. I am very excited for that as well. Um, to be a keynote speaker at my very favorite conference is truly a dream come true. Oh, thank you so much. That's so nice to hear. And I'm I'm personally very excited. Um, so we're going to be speaking a little bit today about your background and research. And hopefully we'll we'll have a few details dropped in there about your keynote just to act as a bit of a teaser for our listeners as well. So I'm going to start off with quite a big, broad question just about um, kind of your background in research, if that's OK. So would you mind telling us a little bit about how you first got into visible difference research? Yeah, well, you know, I like to say that I've been interested in visible differences um, ever since I was born um, because I was born with a facial difference, Mobius syndrome. Um, and this is a condition that is quite rare um, and involves facial paralysis. 
So from a very young age, I started to recognize that I communicated differently from others um, and that sometimes others uh, misunderstood what I was trying to communicate. So um, that made me even more fascinated and, you know, the different ways that, that we can communicate. Um, and so, you know, that really drove me to study psychology in undergrad, um, you know, communication, social interaction, all of that stuff was just hugely fascinating to me. Um, and I think in the back of my head, I also was hoping that psychology could tell me a bit about um, about myself, about disability and about um, facial difference, um, you know, and I think that's kind of why many people go into psychology, right? They want to understand a bit more about their own identities as well as the world around them, um, especially when, you know, you're a, you're a young adult going into college, that time of identity formation, you're really trying to learn about yourself and the world around you. Um, and so, you know, I entered my program and um, started to notice that, uh, well, gosh, no one's talking about um, facial difference or, or really disability in general. Um, and so, you know, kind of towards the end of my time at university, I, uh, I went to a mentor and said, you know, I really want to learn more about this. And um, we decided I would do some research, um, search the literature and write a paper and um, sadly it turned out that there were not enough citations um, on Lodius syndrome to write a paper. Um, you know there are really only a handful of studies um, somewhat relevant to psychology uh, and you know I talked with mentors a lot about that and part of me wanted to just kind of turn away and find something else um, but then another part of me felt like you know I had the kind of special motivation and insight to to change this in psychology so luckily I listened to that part more <laughs> um, and decided to kind of go into grad school and look at this stuff more um, and, you know, that was a bit of a struggle too. Lots of people struggle with getting into graduate school, um, but, you know, listeners who might know about um, higher education and psychology know that it's this very close mentorship kind of apprenticeship model. And when you're going to grad school, you really want to find someone who, um, who studies the thing that, that you want to learn how to do um, and has that, you know, experience. And so that was really challenging challenging going into an area where, you know, there are only a couple of citations. Um, so I ended up uh, not finding mentors who specifically studied Modius syndrome or facial paralysis or facial difference, but I did find some really great mentors who were um, willing to support me creatively, you know, and kind of help me figure out issues and um, were really great allies. So, um, you know, with their support, I started to study Mobius syndrome and then more broadly, um, I started to recognize that Mobius syndrome was, um, you know, just one uh, part of a much larger umbrella group of um, facial difference and visible difference. And um, then I also started to kind of think about the bigger picture of rare disorders and then 
disability and more broadly. So as I continued my work, you know, I've really enjoyed kind of expanding out beyond uh, one specific condition and thinking about the commonalities that many different um, people with disabilities can experience, um, as well as the nuanced differences between them. Wow, thank you so much, Kathleen. What a what a journey and and kind of coming from your personal experience into your um, kind of psychology program. And I totally kind of resonate with that idea of, you know, lots of people go into psychology because they're looking to understand their own experience a bit better. And I'm sure many, many other people who have been down that route also uh, feel that way as well. And and also great to hear kind of how you persevered through that kind of lack of literature in the beginning and how, you know, how to get started and, and how you then kind of took a broader look at um, kind of disability in general and how that's kind of brought you to, to, the, to the field of visible difference um, from a professional point of view. Thanks so much. Um, within kind of all of that and, and, and where you are kind of today, have there been any kind of pivotal moments you would say in your career that have kind of brought you where you are? You know, the, the pivotal moment for me um, was really connecting with um, a community of people with lived experience. Um, again, growing up, my condition was quite rare. Um, I would never encounter someone who looked like me um, in my everyday life, you know, in my town. Um, so I really had to uh, make a make an effort to connect with others, and um, the Mobius Syndrome Foundation in America holds conferences for families and people with Mobius Syndrome every two years. And I was finally able to uh, to get to one when I was um, in my mid twenties, about to start graduate school, actually. And I think that was kind of part of the motivation, some of, part of me knew, okay, now is really the time you've got to kind of learn about this community more, you've got to get connected. Um, so I remember they were having the conference um, in San Francisco just several weeks before I would move to San Francisco to start my graduate work there. So it was just the perfect timing and location. Um, and I remember the very first morning when I walked into um, the the lobby to register and suddenly I was surrounded by, you know, maybe 50 people who looked like me after having never seen another person in person before who looked like me. Um, and I remember being quite overwhelmed um, with lots of emotion, good and, you know, and 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 it was a lot, it was stressful too, you know, and it was um, it was a lot to kind of think about yourself and how other people would see you from, you know, kind of an outside perspective. Um, and over the course of that weekend, I developed these really um, deep connections with people who would ultimately kind of become like family to me. Um, and I particularly remember finding a role model that I had never found before. Um, his name is Matthew Jaffe, and he's a psychotherapist with Mobius Syndrome. Um, and I remember having lunch with him and just being amazed that, you know, someone with Mobius is able to do, you know, something related to the field that I wanted to do. And it was really the first time I had that 
opportunity to um, have a mentor like that. Thanks so much. And I, I think I remember reading some of your work around the, the Mobius uh, syndrome conferences um, and kind of really feeling the, the, the power of, of kind of the impact of that peer support and that community, even just kind of coming off the page from from reading your work about it. And, you know, having, the, you know, we do a lot of work with different charities who hold those kinds of events for families and for individuals. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when we attend those, I definitely feel the the power of that especially when kind of people leave with with new connections and like you say you know finding um new role models or, or mentors or or friends and 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 I can see how that would be a, a really fundamental experience to people especially if they they don't know anyone or have never met anyone with the same condition thank you Absolutely. for sharing that yeah I think that is such an important thing that many organizations do as you say Maya um And, you know, in particular, I would encourage anyone who wants to study a community, um, you know, especially a rare community, to to really connect with that community, right? Um, So I spent a lot of time talking just now about kind of the personal benefits of of connecting, but, you know, I think that my research um, would have never been as um, applicable or valid um, if I had not connected with this community and continued to um, to then draw from other people's experiences and later do kind of participatory research and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's a really important um, piece of advice for for anyone really who's who's working with kind of members of a community, and it it, it is kind of the starting point of that, like you say, that participatory um, kind of approach to research, isn't it? Is kind of getting that really genuine connection with community. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Um, in terms of kind of what you're currently working on as well, um, is there something that um, kind of that's going on for you and your work that you're really excited about at the moment? And would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, well, uh, this came from actually uh, some collaborations with CAR members. So Diana Harcourt and Nick Sherratt um, and I uh, have been doing a project on disclosing visible differences. Um, and this was really inspired by some work that um, Nick Sherratt had done several years ago um, around the experience of people who had visible differences that were concealable to some extent. And, you know, um, the experiences of kind of deciding um, whether or not to disclose. And, you know, in talking with him, it occurred to me that um, people with highly visible facial differences, even those that are not concealable, also experience um, disclosure decisions in a way. Um, You know, we might also call it explaining, right? So um, a person with a facial difference, for example, walks into a room and it's not a concealable difference, um, people will notice. And, um, you know, the person themselves might notice that others are staring at them. They might even get questions. Um, they may feel, an, you know, kind of a, um, a pressure to get rid of the elephant in the room, so to speak, and, and kind of just acknowledge it and explain it. Um, and some people may not, right? There are a lot of individual differences around, um, you know, whether or not to address your condition. But we wanted to study this in a mixed methods way um, to really see what was going on there. So. Um, 
First, we did a qualitative study with um, 16 people with um, with facial differences that were not concealable um, and simply ask them those questions. What is your experience? You know, are there times when you have disclosed and times when you haven't? How did that go? How did that feel for you? Um, and then we followed up with a large scale qualitative uh, survey um, and we interviewed uh, gosh, 288 uh, people with facial differences. Um, and so quite a big sample. And it was really great that we were able to collaborate with CAR there because we had a nice mixture of people from the US and the UK and some people from beyond as well. Um, and so in that survey, we wanted to see if these disclosure um, categories that we found in our qualitative work also resonated with this larger group. Um, and, you know, I can share a bit about those categories that we found. Um, we essentially found uh, that uh, some people had experiences of agentic disclosure or non-disclosure. And um, this means that they felt obliged to disclose or felt forced to not disclose. Um, so these were you know, generally felt to be harmful experiences because they didn't have a lot of control on the situation. Um, and then we found a category of autonomous non-disclosure. So that meant that people either choose to, uh, well, autonomous non-disclosure meant that people um, chose to not disclose or only disclose to people who were close to them. Um, and then there was autonomous disclosure where people were really open about disclosing um, in many settings. They were fine with kind of others disclosing for them. Um, and some actually chose to broadcast, um, meaning that they disclosed with the goal of educating others and engaging in advocacy. And indeed, we found uh, those same categories to be present um, in our large-scale survey. And we were also able to connect them to some, um, you know, what we think are meaningful life outcomes, uh, like anxiety and depression and job satisfaction. And um, people who have been listening to this podcast for a while probably aren't surprised that um, autonomous disclosure uh, was associated with those better outcomes. So um, this has been a really interesting area to pursue because to our knowledge, no one has um, really examined this experience of, um, of uh, disclosing or explaining something that is quite visible and we call it disclosing the obvious sometimes. Um, so some of the next steps that we're hoping to do include um, examining the experience of teenagers, right? Because we think this is a time when um, they may go, be going through a lot of transitions, maybe needing to explain to new peers, maybe starting dating, um, maybe going through job interviews for the first time. Um, so we want to see what they're experiencing um, and how we can support them. And similarly, we want to understand um, how parents experience um, disclosure because 
parents of very young children, of course, are also asked questions about their children uh, before the child really um, would be able to respond. And then they need to learn how to kind of support uh, their children as they grow up and develop more um, independence in deciding whether to disclose. It's such a fascinating topic and um, there's so much there, including a massive sample size, which is which is fantastic to hear. Um, and I think this idea of kind of that that level of control that people have over what they what they say to people and in what circumstances is is so essential and so key um and i think that will be such an interesting project to do with with definitely with adolescents just because like you say it's just that time of well self-discovery but also that time when you meet so many new people and you have so, so many social transitions where you're kind of finding yourself that it's it's probably something that comes up very regularly um and yeah i think that will be a really really fascinating project so my next question is around um kind of what what you might say to your younger self so is there any career advice that you might give um to your younger self if you could go back in time and tell yourself something that you know now um well it goes back to kind of that turning point we talked about earlier and that is about finding community um and you know like i said i think that is both for um you know one's own personal social support but it's also for um building uh knowledge and career skills to to grow from right um so Another part of community that has been really important to me is um, a community of people with disabilities who are psychologists that I have, um, well, I was fortunate to kind of gather and then cultivate. And um, now I'm really excited that um, we have an organization um, that we kind of built from it uh, called DARN, which stands for the Disability Advocacy and Research Network. And that was um, co-founded by me and Lisa Aspinwall and Afruz Jumadi. Um, and so now we have this network of psychologists and students all interested in disability. Um, we have probably around 375 members or so. Wow. And it's just, yeah. And That's it's just really like cool. the kind of thing that I, you know, I craved when I was, you know, coming up in grad school, you know, and it makes me so happy to have it now and so happy to see, um, you know, our new kind of grad students coming up in an environment where they do have more support. I can imagine that would be invaluable and it's and it's so lovely that you've kind of come full circle that you've kind of created something that younger you would have wanted and now seeing those kind of early um career students kind of coming through and 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 getting the benefit of that community absolutely amazing um so i guess kind of um a similar question maybe but within your career so far is there anything that you're you know, particularly proud of, really proud of, and is could you tell us a little bit about that? You know, um, that uh, the creation of Darn is indeed something I'm super proud of. Um, another thing that that I'm proud of actually kind of helped lead to creating Darn was um, that I and Dana Dunn uh, 
edited a special issue on ableism for the Journal of Social Issues a few years ago. And that was the first time in more than 31 years that that journal had um, had focused on disability. Wow. So a lot had changed, a lot had grown. So that was exciting to kind of see, you know, where the um, where the field had come um, and also really to enter the term ableism into kind of our modern vernacular, especially in um, in academic psychology. Um, so, you know, we put forth like a very simple definition. Ableism is um, stereotyping prejudice or discrimination towards people with disabilities, right? And um, being able to use those you know, very simple terms that um, that draw from plenty of other excellent like social psych research on um, prejudice allowed us to, you know, really kind of start to shape this newer conversation around ableism. And we gathered, you know, uh, 12 articles from lot, especially lots of early career people who were just starting to do this kind of research. Um, put out, you know, what I think was a really exciting issue. And then in a few years, kind of some of those people ended up um, being part of the early stages of DARN. So that was really exciting. That is very cool. And and as you said, obviously very key to, to bring that term ableism into, into the um into people's minds, into the language being used around um the topic. And also really important just to have the conversation if it's not been had for that long, um, mm-hmm. um particularly in in that platform. And so cool that you're able to feature lots of early career researchers and give them that opportunity to to have that voice in that conversation as well. And 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 so lovely to see it all kind of join together with the formation of Darn as well and, and people becoming part of that. Um, wow, Kathleen, there's 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 we've covered an awful lot already. We're kind of talking about your your career and and your um kind of interests in invisible difference research and and also disability more broadly. And it's it's really clear to me how enormous amount you've contributed to the area. It's it's really fantastic. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Plenty of other excellent people who have um, really helped lead the way as well. Fantastic. Yes, it's, it's always it's always good teams um, yes. that contribute to such, you know, fantastic areas of work. Um, so I wonder if you'd mind if we would kind of jump over a little bit and talk a little bit about the Appearance Matters conference series itself uh, and kind of your experience with um, Appearance Matters kind of past and and um, future as well. Um, so. What was your first Appearance Matters conference, if you don't mind me asking? And do you remember any highlights from it at all? So my very first Appearance Matters conference was Appearance Matters 8 in Bath. Um, and, you know, the real standout moment to me was um, James Partridge's keynote speech. And in that speech, he launched Face Equality International, his, you know, international organization fighting for policy work um, to to protect people with facial differences as a human right. Um, and that was just such a, a powerful talk. Um, I had known James and been in his orbit for a while. Um, so it was great to be able to see kind of this uh, this next stage of what he was planning to do. He's such a, 
um, a powerful, dynamic speaker, and the energy in that room was very exciting. Um, of course, sadly, James passed away a few years ago. Um, a silver lining is that Face Equality International is quite alive and well um, and very active with the new CEO, CEO Phyllida Swift. And I've been um, very excited to play a part in a lot of their advocacy work and um, serve in a, as an advisor for some of their anti-stigma work and research and stuff like that. So it has really been nice to see that um, continue on. Thanks, Kathleen. What, a, what an excellent highlight to choose as well. And Face Quality International is obviously a fantastic organisation with doing loads of great work. Um, if it's OK with you, would you mind giving us a little bit of a taster about what you might be speaking about in your keynote speech, please? For sure. And I, I just have to say, too, that it is like wild and humbling that I will be on that stage that James was a few years ago. I like can't get that out of my mind. And they are huge shoes to fill. So the title of my talk um, is Putting a Face to Appearance Research representation of understudied visible differences. Um, so I'll be kind of talking a lot about some of the stuff we've already touched on, Maya, um, but, you know, kind of in general, my research, teaching and advocacy work um, that focuses on uh, building disability representation in our field and particularly building representation of conditions that have been less studied. Uh, so you know, I think often we focus on, when we focus on visible difference, we focus on concealable visible differences and more common conditions. And of course, we can all see why that happens. Um, but I think that we can uh, learn a lot from uh, conditions that are rarer as well, right? Because they kind of bring up nuance from the margins. Mm. Um, and so I'll talk about my work around facial paralysis and how, um, you know, not only is facial paralysis a visible difference, but um, it also adds a layer of stigma because it affects communication so profoundly. Um, so I'll talk about uh, some of my large studies on uh, people with congenital and acquired facial paralysis. Um, and we do seem to find uh, what we call a congenital advantage for people with facial paralysis, um, suggesting that uh, being born with kind of limited um, facial expression actually may prompt people to, um, to develop adaptation strategies early on in life, um, you know, compared to an experience of someone who might acquire their facial paralysis later, who then may experience kind of a feeling of a change in identity and having to relearn how to interact. Um, so we see lower anxiety and depression and stigma among people with congenital facial paralysis. But what I should note is that both groups do struggle with mental health still. We found that um, people with facial paralysis in general had um, higher depression, anxiety, and stigma than norm populations of general population. Um, so this really is kind of an 
an under-recognized um, group that experiences a lot of challenges. Um, one thing that I found pretty interesting and that I'm sure James Partridge would appreciate <laughs> is that um, when we conducted regressions to see what the main predictors were for um, anxiety and depression in those populations, we found that stigma was the number one predictor, right? So, so this tells us that there is definitely a role for um, social change, policy work, as well as supporting individuals to, you know, to help them um, to help them develop a positive image of themselves and, and um, try to avoid internalizing that stigma. So, you know, um, with that, I, I, I will um, talk about other rare disorders as well um, and how they kind of loop into uh, the facial difference world and the disability world in general. And I'll discuss you know, some of the advocacy work that I've been talking about and, and really call on anyone who's interested in, in these topics to join DARN. It is an international organization. Um, we have plenty of members in the UK. We have members in Japan. It's very cool to see how broad it's grown. That is very cool. And you're, you're the, 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 what you've given us there is very exciting. I'm really, really <laughs> looking forward to your presentation even more so now. Um, and I'm sure it will make a fantastic addition to um, Appearance Matters 10. So thank you, Kathleen. You've already given us quite a, a, a bit of an overview, but I was wondering whether um, there were maybe three things that you would like people to take away from your talk once, once they've heard it. Yeah, um, well, and, and one thing I also want to notice is I've been asked to do a workshop as well. Um, and so, you know, maybe I'll answer that question collectively for the talk yeah, in the course. workshop. Um, and the, the workshop is um, called Anti-Ableist Practices and Psychology. Um, so from, you know, from what I what I put out there at Appearance Matters, um, I'd really like people to take away um, the importance of inclusion, not just the common conditions, um, but including the um, the margins as well, right? Because we can learn so much and. Um, and increase equity by thinking about the, the full spectrum of human experiences. Um, and part of that, of course, is not just studying those groups, but it's including them as researchers, um, fostering students who have those lived experiences, who want to go into the field, um, as well as, um, you know, engaging more in participatory work uh, that, that values the lived experience. You know, and I would also just add that uh, understanding uh, people with visible differences can tell us a lot about the broader body image world in general, which often, you know, focuses on people who do not have disabilities, but certainly the interaction of having a disability or a visible difference and being in, being a human in the world today with all sorts of um, social pressures and media uh, can can complicate things and can also teach us about kind of maybe alternate ways that people develop resilience um, and coping. 
So yeah, I think those are kind of three-ish things that sort of blended together that I would like people to take away from. It sounds fantastic. And I and I love that when you're speaking about it, it's got a real kind of um, like active change um, kind of um, social movement kind of theme to it as well. Like you were saying, there's definitely, um, you know, two sides, you know, including the individual's experience, but also there's need for societal change and the role of stigma within that. Um, and, you know, I'm really looking forward to hearing more of that within your within your presentation, but also within your workshop as well. It both sound absolutely fascinating. Um, so thank you so much, Kathleen. It's it's really exciting. And hopefully this has been a good teaser for people um, who may be coming to the conference. Um, or who listen to Appearance Matters, the conference, as we'll be putting up a recording of the keynote later in the year as well for people to listen to, which is great. I do have one bonus question. Um, as as you all know, Kathleen, because you've you've been a visitor at CAR, um, we do have a cake and coffee morning on a Thursday morning after our CAR weekly session, which is our team meeting. Um, and we ask all of our guests, of course, if you were to come again um, to our coffee morning, what kind of sweet treat doesn't necessarily have to be sweet actually what kind of snack cake whatever um would you bring um to our coffee morning Mm, i love that question um and i love to cook and i think you might know that about me so um i am more of a cooker than a baker um but you know one thing that i really like to uh to bake are just just muffins with a ton of fruit in them so um like a really rich banana muffin or like a morning glory muffin with a ton of different fruit and veggies in it so um, yeah i would be happy to bring that and i will have to say i tasted some delicious fruit cake while i was um over there last time and um as an american i was amazed by the (laughs) like the uh, and then the time that goes into developing and um, and aging a good fruitcake. I was talking to people in September who made their fruitcake and it would be ready in December. <laughs> oh, yes, it's it's a big investment, a big investment piece is a fruitcake. <laughs> but yes, your, the, the, your morning muffins sound absolutely delicious and they would be a very welcome addition at the, at the car coffee for sure. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for for joining us today. It's been really, really wonderful to speak to you. And thank you for sharing so much about your career and and some of your highlights, as well as giving us a little bit of a flavour about um, your Appearance Matters 10 keynote presentation and workshop as well. Thank you so much for having me. That was super interesting. Kathleen has so much experience and amazing work to share. I'm really looking forward to her keynote in June and also to sharing that talk with our listeners as well. And for anyone who is interested in finding out more about Appearance Masters 10 and how to attend, we will include a link in our show notes for the conference webpage. Yes, definitely go check out the webpage and also keep a lookout for our other Appearance Matters 10 conference content coming up on the podcast soon. A huge thank you to Kathleen again for joining us, for sharing her advice and career reflections with Maya and for kicking off our conference episodes.
Yes. And next episode, it will, it's not going to stop. <laughs> so we're going to have <laughs> Nadia speaking to Professor Philippa Diedrichs, who is our second Appearance Matters 10 conference keynote speaker. Yes, really excited for that. It'll be a great episode. Um, and as always, you know the drill. Thank you so much for listening to Appearance Matters, the podcast. Please remember to share, subscribe, rate and review. And until next time. Bye. bye.